2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this second session is Brother Mark O'Grady from Tawa, New Zealand. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complementary Roles. This is his fourth class, and the subject for this class is Mothers of Millions. Our reading was taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. We'll ask our brother Mark to come up now. Good morning, everybody. Well, this topic has to be one of my favourite sections in this overall theme of complementary roles as we look at the, the magnificent role of mothers as it's defined in Scripture. Now, once again, we have to make the point that the experience of motherhood is not one that is shared by all. Nevertheless, this morning, as we examine what the scriptural teaching is about the role of mothers in the Bible, it is something that we can all identify with one way or another. At the very least, I think it's probably safe to say that all of us have been children. We've all had a mother. So the role of a mother is something which we can identify with at least in that capacity uh, alone. And all of us in scriptural terms, of course, have been born of heavenly Jerusalem, which is described as being the mother of us all. And what we're going to see a bit later on is that this this topic then suddenly expands beyond the, the literal and the immediate, the, the physical, to an, an entire spiritual aspect which involves God's whole purpose with creation as well. Some very far-reaching divine principles. All right, well, I want us to start with a, a delightfully challenging quote, and it's one that provokes unease and sometimes even a bit of a reaction. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity or love and holiness with sobriety. Do you find that passage challenging? What's the apostle saying? Is he implying that women are only good for childbearing? That they should be relegated to a role as mothers? That if they behave themselves by having a few children and then maintain a bit of faith and love, then maybe they'll be saved as well? Unfortunately, the English translation we have here is is not that great, but in some ways it does us a bit of a favour because it helps us to confront something. And the Apostle is alluding here to something that is very rich. The role of having children is not just an accidental byproduct of being a woman. Rearing and raising children is a magnificent scriptural theme and it's one that's very central to our community and also to our shared destiny Uh, as well. And what we're going to find is that the scriptural idea of motherhood is a total contrast to the perspective that this world has on the role of motherhood. Because today, in today's society, being a mum at home with the kids is not esteemed as being successful or as having reached her full potential. How many people in Canada today would see being a mum at home as being an extraordinary example of success in life. As opposed to someone, for example, who's reached a senior management position in an organisation, or even run their own successful business. And in today's society, being a stay-at-home mum seems boring, mundane, perhaps 
downtrodden, certainly humdrum. But brothers and sisters, that's a fallacy. It's actually sheer idiocy. It's proof to us that the world in which we live has gone mad. But the problem we have is that our mothers labour under that implied disdain. Sisters, when you go to fill in the form and it asks what your occupation is, is there any implied stigma in writing housewife or stay-at-home mother? Never ever think that childbirth and being a mum is a second-rate role. And our objective this morning is to learn to esteem and to support the role of motherhood, to rejoice in it, to triumph in it, and to laugh together at this world's folly. Let's have a look at the subject as far as God sees it. All right, I'd like you to come back with me somewhat predictably to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the blessing that God gave to both the man and his wife. Genesis 1, let's pick up in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So here we have a blessing from God upon the man and his wife. Actually, it's more than just a blessing. It's an instruction, isn't it? Be fruitful. Multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Actually, this is the foundation statement of God's purpose with man. It's the very first chapter of the Bible. It's the first statement of what God's intention with the human race is. And it's actually the first words that God has recorded as having spoken to man. That makes this little statement somewhat powerful doesn't it? Childbirth and motherhood is one of the most basic and foundation principles of God's plan with the human race. God wants this whole earth to be full of people who know and reflect his glory and his honour. And that is not possible without the theme of childbirth and the role of mothers. It's like the most basic building block. In some ways, it's very common. This may be why people just take it for granted. I guess a bit like death and, and taxes and the laws of gravity and things like that. But, but think about this. Just imagine if motherhood had been switched off 100 years ago, 110 years ago, say back in 1915. What would the earth be like today? Empty. Completely void. Waste. Desolate. All of God's purpose with the planet Earth would have gone. And none of us would exist if motherhood had been simply switched off a hundred years ago. We're a dying race. The entire race would be over. So God's plan and purpose with the earth critically depends upon the role of childbirth and the role of motherhood. In fact, you know, the, the very name that Adam gave his wife commemorates this. Come over with me to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve, of course, means life or living. So she's called Eve because she's the mother of all living. You know, there's actually a very subtle play on ideas going on here. Look at the context. In verse 19, 
In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Dying thou shalt die. Adam has just been condemned to death. Now, death has passed on all men. As we know from scripture, in Adam all die. The human race is condemned to death. And in contrast, Eve is the mother of life. There's a very powerful play on ideas here. She becomes the mother of all living flesh. Because the only way for the human race to continue was for children to be born, to replenish the earth. And that's why Eve is named life. She's the mother of life. So here, her central role in rescuing the human race from oblivion is being highlighted. Also, of course, bear in mind that in the process, as we find earlier in Genesis chapter 3, one of her seed would turn out to be the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent for all time. So what that tells us is that this concept of men and women coming together and having children is the basic building block that God has designed. And so the instruction was to them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with their offspring. In fact, our title this morning, it might sound a bit strange, Mother of Millions. Does anybody know where that comes from? It's a slight misquote, by the way. Actually, the quote is Mother of Thousands of Millions, which is a pretty big hustle. Anybody know where that's from? Almost. I heard Sarah. Not quite. Rebecca. It's the blessing that Rebecca's family gave when she was taken to become the bride for for Isaac. May thou become the mother of thousands of millions. Now, that is a blessing, not a curse. Um, but, but it just shows us this idea of fruitfulness. In fact, the theme of fruitfulness gets picked up in Noah, to be fruitful and multiply. It's there in the promises to Abraham, the promises to Isaac, and the promises to Jacob. So it's a theme. In fact, it comes up again in Exodus chapter 1, uh, at the, the birth of Israel as a nation. It talks about them being multiplied, and that they were fruitful, and they, they filled the land. Again, the, the, the same emphasis is there. It's a basic building block of God's purpose with his people. But it's not just having kids for kids' sake. It's not just to satisfy some biological urge. There's a greater purpose that God has involved in this as well. And the prophecy of Malachi highlights this quite well. Did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. Well, why one? That he might seek the godly seed. It's not just offspring, it's the idea of the godly seed. Now, brothers and sisters, every family here this week aspires to that, the godly seed. That's why we're here. We come to Bible schools with our children for that reason. That's what we want our children to be. We want them to become that godly seed. And that requires mothers who understand and appreciate their God-given role. All right, well, perhaps a good place for us to now move on to is the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 1. I find this a very, a very graphic passage, and you can, you can imagine this scene happening in your mind. Proverbs 14, verse 1, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with your hands, with her hands. Now, can you, can you picture the scene in your mind? You've got a wise woman, and she's faithfully diligently, systematically constructing her house. She's building it brick 
by brick as she assembles the walls of her household. And it's a work of time. And over time, the shape of the house begins to appear. The house begins to take shape. I'm intrigued by the fact here, by the way, that it's actually the woman that's described as the building of the house. This is not just a role for the fathers. It's a role that both father and mother have in the building of a house. It's a dual responsibility. Now, in your mind, I'd like you to picture the complete contrast. A foolish woman. She's randomly careering around like a loose cannon in this house. She's insanely ripping apart what little remains, brick after brick, fiendishly ripping it apart, until in the end, she sits in abject despair in the destroyed ruins of her house. It's a very graphic little passage. Every wise woman builds her house. The foolish plucketh it down with her hands. So mothers, you are the builders of your house. Now the Hebrew word for house, Beth or Beit, is used of both buildings, but as we know also of families and of households. So it's, it's a reference to people. So in your work in the home, you're building your family brick by brick. Doesn't it seem interminable? Just like endless toil. I know that in our household, I thought we would never escape the nappies. Or try this one, sisters. You look at a scene of utter devastation at the table after a meal has just been devoured. It's like the ruins of a sack city. I mean, you can just about still see the smoke rising from the ashes. You've got dirty dishes, there's crumbs on the floor, there's knives and forks everywhere. And you say, all that work. And it was just devoured. It was consumed in a matter of moments. And now I've got to turn around and do it all over again. What have I got in the cupboard for supper? And it just seems like this endless cycle of work. Or out to school, drop the kids off, back home again. Back out to school again because Johnny forgot his lunch. Back home again. Out to school to pick the kids up after school and back home again. Uh, a couple of years back, we had young Amy's graduation from primary school. And a bit of a strange thing's happened now. Primary school used to be one of those things that sort of happened on your way through to high school. But now, when you finish primary school, there's a, there's a graduation ceremony. And when Amy left, they had the graduation ceremony. And they give out little certificates to the families whose involvement with the school has now come to an end. Now, we got a special mention in dispatches because it happened to bring to an end 21 years of continuous involvement with that same primary school. Now, I was actually uh, given the opportunity to say a few words, and we turned up with the whole family, actually, and, and, and talked to the parents that were there. And I, I just did a rough calculation, and I talked about the 8,000 trips that Nari had made to primary school. Now, that's maybe a little bit of an extreme example, and for those that homeschool, and I know a lot do, you'll have to come up with some other equivalent. I bet you can. The role of mothers just seems like an interminable cycle of daily toil. No sooner do I get the clothes clean than the little darlings wear them again. But mothers, what are you doing? You're building your house. And all that faithful labour and care and nourishing is actually building the house brick by brick, as it were, week by week. It's actually achieving something. The word build back there in Proverbs 14 verse 1 is the Hebrew word banar, to build, to cause, to establish or to continue. 
And mothers, that's exactly what your faithful labour is doing. You are building that house. One brick doesn't make a house. A thousand bricks faithfully laid does. And that's what our mothers are doing. You know what it is that you're actually building? Well, the Hebrew word for sons is ben. And it's derived from banar to build. The Hebrew word for daughters, bath, is also derived from banar to build. That's the house that you're building. And then, of course, to cap it all off in the beautiful symmetry that is scripture, the word house itself, beth or bait, is also derived from the verb, the verb to build. So the building of the house, the building of the sons and the daughters of the family, that is the precious role of a faithful mother. Now that little phrase, every wise woman, the word wise is an adjective that comes from the verb hakam, to be wise or to act wisely. Now the theological word book has a very interesting definition of what this wisdom is. The essential idea of hakam represents a manner of thinking and attitude concerning life's experiences, including matters of general interest and basic morality. These concerns relate to prudence in secular affairs, skills in the arts, moral sensitivity, and experience in the ways of the Lord. What a definition of a mother. So, how does a wise woman build her house, her sons and her daughters? Mothers, what's the building process that you're involved? How do you actually do that? Well, note those little words there. It says in the middle there, matters of general interest and basic morality. And then it talks about concerns that relate to prudence, and it goes on to speak about moral sensitivity and experience in the ways of the Lord. Basic morality. And here is the crux of it. It's the mothers that instill those basic principles in the minds of their little children. Sure, Dad's got an important role to play as he guides the family and teaches these sorts of principles, but it's Mum who particularly has a significant influence in those early formative years because she's the one that's there all day. So she starts with the two-year-old. She's there speaking with the four-year-old all day. And that's where their very simple basic values come from. Now note those two little expressions that we've got there, basic morality and moral sensitivity. Little Susie, you can't say that, can you? That's not truthful, is it? Basic morality relating to honesty and truthfulness. Little Johnny, uh -uh, don't touch. You might want it, but you know that it's not yours. Basic morality relating to self-control and appreciating the property rights of others. Oops, little Susie, what a mess. How did that happen? Never mind. Come and give Mummy a hand to mop it up. Basic morality. When we spill something, we have to fix it up. Owning the consequences of our actions and taking responsibility to put it right. Little Johnny, no, you can't have another biscuit. You know you've already had one. Basic morality relating to self-control and restraining our own personal lusts. 
You see, these are the tiny little threads out of which whole characters are woven. And the tapestry of a complex adult character begins with these simple little things which are instilled by the mother. Mum's there all day, every day. And that's the house that she's building with those little comments. With every conversation she has, she's building that house. Every time she speaks to the child, she's building that house. So young men, when you look for a partner in life, ask for God's help to find a sister who loves basic morality, godly virtues. Because she's the one who will then automatically want to share those with your children. And the power of her influence in your home will be overwhelming. I just don't get how mothers can voluntarily put their little children in a creche to go out and resume a career. Mothers, why would you abandon that responsibility, that, that brief little window of opportunity, the opportunity with every passing conversation to instill those beautiful little values in a little mind, why would you abandon that privilege to anyone else? Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. All right, whilst we're looking at Proverbs, I'd like you to come with me to Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. The book of Proverbs has some quite powerful little statements about the role of motherhood. Proverbs 1, verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Interesting expression, the law of thy mother. All right, let's turn over to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 and verse 20. My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. When it says the law of thy mother, the word law is the word Torah. It means law, direction, or instruction. So my son, never forsake. It means to never abandon or let fall that guidance from your mother. Now you know what he goes on to say? Verse 21. Bind them continually upon thine heart. Tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. When thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And what it's telling us, mothers, is that that's the built house. That's a child who has now learnt from those principles, and they're able to guide them in their life. It's a child who grows up and is led by the little principles that were taught when they were three and six and nine years of age, keeping them when they sleep, talking with them when they awake. And the, the instigation of those little principles, into putting them into a little mind, is the building of the house, brick by brick, stone by stone. Now when we stop and think of that, brothers and sisters, you, you just can't find words eloquent enough to describe the unfathomable value of a godly woman in her house, teaching those principles to her children in their home. Now, we know Paul's instruction to Titus. He said, Titus, speak to the older sisters in your ecclesia and get them to talk to the younger sisters in your ecclesia and, and show them how important that their role is. Because, of course, the older sisters are the very best ones to do it. 
They've been able to lead by example. So Paul says, Titus, get those older sisters in your ecclesia to talk to the young mums. Brothers and sisters, I would that ecclesia life was full of those older sisters who could then sit down and talk to the young mothers and encourage them in those principles and what they're doing together day by day with their children in their home. And, you know, it's so much more powerful at times coming from an older sister than it does from some brother on the platform because it's words of advice based on experience and also example. And young mums, if you're blessed with older sisters like that in ecclesial life, then listen to their advice, particularly when it's driven from a godly perspective. Well, what will those older sisters teach? Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, The aged woman likewise teaches of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their, children, their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. So just pick up this little phrase, keepers at home. It's the Greek word um, oikuros. And it literally means caring for the house, working at home, a watch or keeper of the house, keeping at home or taking care of household affairs. Literally, the word it's actually derived from means to be a guard or a keeper, a protector of the home. So this is a mother who's protecting her home. She's working in it diligently, and her home then becomes a haven of the things that are right. The values in your home. The way people speak in your home. The things people see and look at in your home. The sort of activities that take place in your home. The sort of people you find in your home. The sounds that pervade your household. The atmosphere of that home. That Mothers is what you're protecting for your children's sake. That's how we build our homes. And for our sisters, this actually requires deliberate strategies. How am I going to do this? How am I going to create that sort of a godly atmosphere in my home? How am I going to protect that environment for my children to grow up in? What am I going to allow into my home? What won't I allow inside my home to create that sort of environment? Now, at this point, we should speak openly and frankly about the theme of working mothers. We live in an extremely aggressive world, and it subjects us to a bombardment of biased messages about what a mum should be doing. But it's also an extremely merciless world in which it can be hard to, to, to survive uh, financially. Now, we've got faithful sisters who are working because they have no other choice. And I know of a number of sisters like that who would love nothing more than to be able to turn their back forever on the workplace and dedicate their lives to running their homes. But for valid reasons, they just can't. Those sisters and those families need our love and our support. But mothers, if we... If we do have the choice, well, what then? What are the needs that cause us to want to work? Is it that little bit extra for easier living? Is it to buy another car or perhaps to go on an additional holiday? Or is the need more personal, a bit more selfish perhaps? 
that I need to be occupied, and I see that as being the most fulfilling way of achieving that. Or that actually I, I feel more needed, more valued, more of a whole member of society, more of a whole person by being able to have my career as well, that I feel more complete, more accomplished, more confident, more independent as a person as a result. And what are the hidden things that you've sacrificed to get there? What you can add to your children, to your husband, to your home, to your brothers and sisters, and to your ecclesia, through making your home a haven of godliness, and then reaching out to share that with other people, is phenomenal. So why would you harm, reduce, or forsake that? when scriptural teaching about the role of mothers is so clear. The ESV translates that passage as, Older women likewise are to teach what is good, to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God be not, may not be reviled. So, so what is it that we're trying to say by this? Well, firstly, brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful not to judge other people because we don't know their own personal circumstances. But when it comes to our own personal choices, we need to be very careful in how we weigh them up. You know, it's amazing, and we all know this, sadly, it's amazing how we can twist with our own human reasonings the facts when we make up our own choices. So mothers, if you can possibly make the choice to dedicate your life to bringing up your children in a godly way, then scripturally, you should. All right, here's another little gem from the Apostle Paul. I will, therefore, he says, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Of course, in the context of, of what we looked at so far, God's purpose for the human race, that's an absolutely understandable passage. It just fits the context of everything else that we've seen. But what I'd like us to focus on at the moment is one phrase in particular, and it's that little phrase, to guide the house. It's the Greek phrase, uh, phrase oikodespotio, the ruler of the house. You might actually recognise the little word despot in the middle of that. It's the ruler of the house. Now, now what's so interesting about that? How can the mother be the ruler of the house? What about the father? What about the husband's role as the ruler? How can you have two rulers in a house? Well, again, of course, the answer lies back in Genesis. Think of day four in Genesis chapter one. There are two lights, and both of those lights are given responsibility to rule. The greater light, the sun, rules the day, and the lesser light, as it's described, which is the moon, is there to rule the night. So the role of rulership, which is possessed by the, by, by the lesser of the two lights, was to be executed in a time when the greater of the two lights is not there. So the light of the moon shines upon the earth in the absence of the sun. And there lies the relationship between the two governing bodies of the home. Mum is the ruler of the house, particularly when dad is not there. So at this point then, we need to turn our attention to the fathers. In Genesis chapter 1, 
In Genesis chapter 1, it says that the, the moon was appointed. The little phrase there is appointed. It was appointed the role of rulership when the sun was not there. So the question to our fathers is, do we appoint or give that role to our wives? And more particularly, does our household actually understand that? Do our children recognise the authority of their mother when you, dad, are not there? Because just as that role was appointed to the moon in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16, so we need to make sure that that role of rulership of the family by the mother is clearly understood by our household. And part of the key, fathers, part of the key to that lies in our behaviour and how we conduct ourselves. Now, of course, in Scripture, it's very clearly a scriptural injunction to obey both parents. Deuteronomy chapter 5, Honour thy father and thy mother, as Yahweh thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which Yahweh thy God giveth thee. That's then picked up by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour thy father and thy mother which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now note in both of these passages, it's not just speaking about obedience, but it actually uses the word honour. Honour father, and also honour the mother. So this element of respect for the mother is obviously very important as far as God's concerned. Now, we know that because of the consequences of what happened to a child in Israel if they were disobedient or dishonoured their parents. Deuteronomy 27, verse 16, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Fathers, the honour that is due to the mother is something that we set the tone on in our family homes. Remember, of course, those words of the Apostle Peter that we looked at yesterday. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So, Father, how do we give honour to our wives? Well, one critical component of that is making it our personal responsibility to ensure that our children respect their mother, that they honour her. And we do that partly by our own example, how we behave towards our wives, and secondly, by what we teach to our children. And this has to be one of the most fundamental of a father's responsibilities. The role of the moon is to reflect the honour and glory of the sun when the sun is not there. Father, if we don't develop those principles of honour and respect when we're there, then don't expect them to be reflected in our household when we are not. So, fathers, we need to make sure that we never undermine the mother in front of our children. Never undermine, always support. And if we disagree with something that mum's done, then let's go offline. Let's discuss it objectively and let's discuss it separately so that we agree a mutual position, so that we show a united front to our children. Remember that little phrase of Lord Jesus Christ? A house divided against itself cannot stand. So a united front and a united approach is absolutely essential in our homes. Now, why is that? Well, remember the words of Malachi? 
Did not he make one, i.e. united, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. So a united approach between father and mother is absolutely essential. So let's work together to make sure that we have a joint approach when it comes to teaching our children. And insisting that our children respect and honour and obey mum is such an important thing when we're not there, which, by the way, is most of the time. And that way, her guidance and her teaching will be more of a pleasure and it will be much more successful. Fine. So how do you do that? Well, you know, it's interesting. If we just listen to our children, just observe how our children behave towards their mum when you, Dad, are not actually involved in the conversation. You know, it's amazing how you can hear what's going on in a different room. And particularly, you know what you can pick up through the wall? You can pick up tone. So let's have an example. Okay, you've got a child. The child's called Henry or Henrietta. And let's say they're in the age 10 to 12 year bracket. About the age when they're perfectly capable, capable of being able to take a shower by themselves. But they haven't yet arrived at the, at the advanced age of maturity where they, they've been able to work out for themselves that they actually need to do it of their own volition. So mum discovers that Henry hasn't had a shower for several days. And so she says, right Henry, time for you to go off and have a shower. And Henry says, huh? <laughs> Do you recognise the tone? Huh? It's said with the tone of most incredulous amazement. Now, Dad, you're not involved in the conversation. You're actually sitting through in a different room. It's not too severe. World War III hasn't actually broken out. Voices aren't even raised. So what do we do about it? We just say, oh, Henry, boy, he's so much hard work at the moment. He'll learn, I guess. There's been no bloodshed. I'll just leave Mum and Henry to battle that little one out by themselves. What does Dad say? Excuse me, Henry, can you just come over here for a moment? Did Mum ask you to have a shower? Well, yes. And did you say, huh? <laughs> or, yeah? Were you questioning why you were being asked to have a shower? Oh, I guess. Were you implying that it was a strange thing for Mum to ask you? Did you think it was an unreasonable thing? Is that what you were implying when you said, huh? Silence. Well, actually, Henry, let me tell you. You were suggesting by your tone that that was a dumb suggestion that your mother just made, that it was unreasonable as well. You were amazed that she was asking you to do something so unreasonable. I didn't hear you say, sure, Mum, if you want me to, I will. In future, you listen to what your Mum says and you be obedient. Actually, Henry, she happens to know a little bit more than you. And she knows that you need a shower, even if you're not old enough to understand that yourself. Now, you get off and do exactly what your mum says, and don't let me hear you speaking to your mother in that tone of voice again. It seems like such an insignificant little thing, doesn't it? That, huh? Yet it's when we stop and analyse it that the implications that sit in behind that are quite extensive, because mum battles that, huh, all day. 
And what we see when we're at home is just the tip of the iceberg. And she gets worn down by it. So she needs our support in the home establishing her honour so that the children respect her when she asks them to do something. And fathers, if we pick up on that, if we reinforce the honour and the respect that is due to the mother, if we give honour to the wife because she is the weaker vessel, then our children will learn to honour father and mother. And in the words of scripture, it will go well with them. And the remarkable thing is, dads, that actually the success of our wives as mothers is substantially enhanced by the attitude that we instill in our children towards their mother. And it helps her in the work that she has to do in the home. So instilling that healthy respect for mum in the minds of the children is a valuable part of family life. And our children, our, our, our mothers are worthy of that respect from their children in family life. All right, well, for the remainder of our time now, what I want us to do is focus on one, just one aspect of motherhood, which is the theme of childbearing. Now, if that seems odd, just wait to see how Scripture takes this theme and extends it out in, in, in a really important way. And in the process, note how the theme moves so swiftly from the literal and the physical to the figurative and to the spiritual as well. It's quite a remarkable illustration of the ways in which scriptural thematics work. And what it's going to show us is the wider context within which motherhood sits. And it's going to help us appreciate more richly God's plan and purpose with us as his people. All right. Now, remember, of course, that we discovered that right from the very earliest chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve were instructed to multiply and to fill the earth. So that's our beginning, our beginning point. But notice again that this passage in Genesis chapter 1, so the idea of childbirth, of multiplying, of filling the earth, that predates the fall. So these are foundation principles that predate the curse. So the question for us is, well, what impact did the curse have on this thing? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see what was said to Eve. Genesis chapter 3. And verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. When it says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, it's actually the same Hebrew word that is repeated twice for emphasis. In multiplying, I will multiply. It's, it's a Hebraism for emphasis. It's a bit like the phrase, dying, thou shalt die. So what is to be multiplied? He said, I will multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Now, multiplying conception, well, I guess that makes sense. They've now just become a dying race. So if God wants to fill the earth with his glory, with people that know and reflect his praise, the multiplying of conception is going to become an essential part of preserving the continuation of the human race, if the earth is to be, fulfilled, uh, to be filled. But what about this idea of multiplying sorrow? Now that tells us that childbirth was now to become a difficult and an unpleasant experience. It was going to be greatly increased in pain and sorrow. And sadly, that is part of the curse. It was partly a punishment for Eve, and it demonstrates the consequences for sin. 
So in the same way that death and pain and suffering has been a condition, become a condition of the human race as part of the mortality that we share in Adam, so pain and sorrow in childbirth has sadly become a consequence for all of Eve's daughters. Now appropriately, when it says that I will increase thy sorrow, it's the same word for sorrow as is applied to Adam in verse 17, when he speaks of having cursed the ground for thy sake, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So here we have at the foundation of the world this idea of pain and sorrow of childbirth being uh, instituted. Now from that time forward in scripture we find that the, the pain of childbirth becomes proverbial. It's referred to in a number of different ways and you'll recognize some of these, these phrases. The word travail, the word pangs, sorrow, filled with pain, pangs taken hold of me, crying out in pangs. And of course every mother that's given birth to a child knows exactly what that entails. So then we find that in Scripture, this idea of childbirth starts to become used as a figure, as a metaphor. It's a descriptor that's used of people who are in trouble or suffering in different ways. And it's also interesting to note that it's actually different features or different aspects of childbirth that are then drawn on. So sometimes it's the pain aspect, terrible sorrow. Other times it's the suddenness. You know, the time suddenly comes when a mum goes into labour. Sometimes it's the inescapable, irreversible nature of it. You know, when the baby starts to arrive, you can't say, actually, I think I won't at the moment, thank you very much. It's just completely, you cannot reverse this process. Once it's begun, it's going to happen. There's an inevitability about it. Sometimes it's the aspect of the fact that you don't know it, but there is a predetermined hour. Time goes on, suddenly the baby arrives. It might be a week early, it might be five days late, but there is a predetermined time when suddenly the baby arrives. That aspect gets picked up symbolically also in Scripture. So there's various aspects that, that do get drawn on in the word as a whole. But the question for us is, is what's the point? Is it all just sort of, you know, well, it's all part of the inevitable suffering that's due to sin? Is, is it sort of like doom and gloom? Is negativity going to prevail? Or is, is there more to the subject than that? Is there something being conveyed here? or being taught by this process? Is there some wider application or relevance to this particular thing? Perhaps when God instigated the concept of, child, of sorrow in childbirth, it wasn't just a consequence of sin or to demonstrate a punishment, but perhaps the consequences of sin were imposed for a particular reason. Now I'd like you to come with me to Romans chapter 8 where this theme begins to widen out. We haven't got time this morning to look in much detail at Romans 8, but what we find is that the theme of creation is pervasive through this section in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the Apostle tells us that the whole of creation is suffering and in bondage, waiting for the manifestation or the revealing of God's sons. So we talk about, it talks about verse 21, the creation itself is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Now verse 18 establishes a key principle. I reckon, says the apostle, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And here we have a, a, very, a very powerful scriptural principle. That there is suffering before the glory. 
And the Apostle's saying, actually, that the suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory which awaits us in the future. Okay, so we've got that. But what's that got to do with childbirth? Well, have a look at verse 22. We know that the whole of creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And that little phrase, travaileth in pain together, is one Greek word, sun odino. And odino is specifically the travail or agony of childbirth. So what's the apostle doing here in Romans chapter 8? What he's doing is he's actually drawing on the entire context of Genesis chapter 3. He's drawing in all aspects of creation now being in bondage to the laws of corruption, waiting for the time when that will actually change. But it's not just the theme of death and corruption. It's the whole chapter he's drawing on. He's explicitly drawing here on the theme of suffering and sorrow in childbirth. Now, what he's telling us is that that's all part of a greater story. The whole of creation is labouring and travailing in pain together now. It's the agony of bringing to the birth of a new state. It's not just creation either, he says here. It's ourselves also, in verse 23, travailing in pain. Let's read verse 23. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So he's telling us here, brothers and sisters, that this travailing in pain is actually a process that will result in a better outcome, which is the new birth. Now, by the way, do you notice an extraordinary mixed metaphor there? Very deliberate use of extraordinary metaphor. Travailing in birth, in pain, waiting for the adoption. If ever there was not to be the, the pain of childbirth, it's when you adopt the child. But what a mixture of metaphors. But what he's actually saying is the pain is ours. The adoption is actually something that God has provided for us. And it's telling us that the whole concept of suffering in creation, which incorporates the theme of pain in childbirth, is actually speaking of the agony of the bringing to birth of new life. And that's the purpose behind it. It's the redemption, he says, of our bodies. And that's actually what the story of childbirth is about. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's a consequence of sin. It's a temporary state. But what it brings about is a wonderful result. The birth of a new life. And so that theme gets picked up in Scripture. Now, if we think about that struggle, which was instituted back in Genesis chapter 3, the principle of suffering before the glory that then comes later, in whose life would we most expect those principles to be found? Where would be the transcendent application of all those principles of Genesis chapter 3? Surely in the life of the Messiah. The groaning in pain and travail. Is that not the death of the Messiah? And his burial? The joy of the new birth. Is that not the resurrection of the Messiah to a new life? The redemption of the body? Birth from the dead? So it's no surprise when we look, for example, at Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that Peter, speaking of Christ's resurrection, says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed 
the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. What word do you reckon he chose for the pains of death? It's the same word, odina. Literally, the pain of childbirth. What a word for God to choose. Of all phrases that could have been used to describe suffering, in speaking of Christ's rising from the dead, he speaks of the pangs of childbirth, now behind him, as the new life comes from the dead. That's what the pain of childbirth symbolises. You know, it actually epitomises the sufferings of the Messiah. And in the rejoicing of the birth of the new child, there's a rejoicing in resurrection from the dead. That's the way that these themes are picked up in Scripture. And so now the very concept of childbirth, the sorrow that's associated with it, and the resulting new life becomes a theme of the redemption of the entire human race. Subject to pain and vanity now, waiting for the birth of a new day of immortality and glory in the future. It's a very powerful theme that then starts to run through Scripture. And it's seen first in Christ, and then in those that will be born from the grave, born in newness of life with the redemption of the rest of the human race. This starts now to become a theme through Scripture. Can you see, for example, that theme engraved in the story of Rachel? Rachel died giving birth to a child. What did she call the child? Ben-Onai, the son of my sorrow. Jacob says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Ben-Yamin, the son of the right hand. And in that little story, brothers and sisters, is encapsulated the agony of death. And the glory of new birth, of the son of the right hand. Again, a glorious picture of the Messiah. So sisters, in your role in childbirth, you epitomize the redemption of the entire human race. Really, actually, the message that's being conveyed behind all this, brothers and sisters, is that there is actually purpose in pain and suffering in this life. That God's objective is in the life to come. That what he's doing is working with us through a difficult process, waiting to bring to birth a glorious new day, in which all of those things will then be behind us. The words of Paul again in Romans chapter 8, he speaks of God having subjected the same in hope, because there is a hope of a glorious time to come. Now if we want to see these principles expressed in the most beautiful way, I'll get you to come with me to the, epistle of the Gospel of John and chapter 16. Because once again, we have the theme of childbirth being closely linked with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 16. Here in John 16, he's actually describing the impact of the death and the resurrection of Christ on the community of the believers. So let's look, for example, at verse 20 in connection. He's talking about how they will cope with losing their Lord. Verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And look at the analogy he uses in verse 21. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Ye now therefore have sorrow. I tell you again, your heart shall rejoice. Your joy 
No man taketh from you. So the context here, brothers and sisters, is he's speaking about the little community of the believers. And he likens that little community, which was about to go through the agony of losing their Lord, he likens that little community to a woman who was in travail. And in their distress and their agony and their despair, as they lost their Lord, he links that to the pain of a woman in the pain of bringing to the birth. And then in the transcendent joy that eclipsed all of their mourning, obliterated in the agony of the birth, sorry, obliterating the agony of the birth, comes the euphoria of new life. And that's how their community was, when they finally beheld their risen Lord, risen from the dead, and they understood that sin and death itself had been conquered by the Father. It's the theme of Jerusalem from above, the mother of us all. It's actually what Mary or Mara or bitterness represents in Scripture, in her relationship with her son that was going to save the world. It's actually a glorious and uplifting theme, and it just pervades the, the, the scriptural record. That's the richness of the theme of motherhood. Now pick up that little phrase there in verse 21. It says, she remembers no more the anguish for joy. Have you ever had the opportunity of, of visiting a new mother in hospital immediately after her child is born? She's lying there on the bed and she's very weary. She's pale and she's exhausted. But her face is lit up with the most glorious smile. There's a light of love in her eyes as she sits there clasping her little baby. There's relief, there's joy, and there's fulfillment. Well, brothers and sisters, hold on to that picture because in that picture is a cameo of our hope, of a time when the suffering which endures but for a moment will be replaced by the glory of a new day, of a new birth in resurrection to immortality. And in that wonderful picture of a young mother with her face aglow with love as she looks at this little child, we see the glorious theme of promise of new life to come. And then, in those wonderful words of the Lord Jesus Christ, ye shall rejoice with a joy that cannot be taken away. 